Would you turn with me for this morning's scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 12. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor murmur, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all of these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands... Take heed, lest he fall. Heavenly Father, I just pray that your word today, your example that you've given us, your people in earlier ages, that it would come to us, that you would open my mouth to bring forward that to your people, which you desire today, and that our ears would be open, that we would not only be hearers, but doers of your word. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, one thing I have to be thankful for as I preach to you this morning for the first time in a long time is we didn't have communion, which that's sad, but it gives me a lot longer time up here with all of you. <laughs> and because my notes didn't get into, into the program, there's this nice big blank page. And so you could just put 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 12 on there, and I'll make sure you all fill it up by the end of the, end of the sermon this morning. I'm going to make a pretty bold statement here. And I, I believe that the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt by the power of God until their possession of the promised land is perhaps one of the most important Old Testament scriptures we have as it pertains to the Christian walk for those of us on this side of the cross. Now this is just one sermon today. It's going to be a topical sermon, although we'll talk a little bit about what Paul said to the Corinthians. But I'm just going to be taking this vast subject and apply the lessons of these historical events between Egypt and the Promised Land. So today I'm not going to discuss or try to prove the authenticity of the events, but I'm going to take a moment in the introduction to speak about how we should view these Old Testament events because in light of modern scholarship, there are many different ways that people um, analyze and look at these events. Now, unfortunately, like I said, we need to take this step. Uh, Liberal critical scholars and even those with better intentions have so distorted these events in order to serve a purpose or they focus on merely one side of the issue and that issue I'll get to in a little bit. 
And what it does is it shuts out what I believe is one of the most important part of these accounts. And we'll get to what that is in just a second. Now on the one side there's, and I lump this all together in one group, liberal critical scholars. They have deconstructed the history. They've torn it down into its little parts and they've taken scripture itself and tried to tear that down as well. And what they've done is left the revelation of God and turned it into just the mythological writings of a Semitic tribe. And if they're just myths, if they're just stories that people told for one reason or the other, then they have no divine authority. And if they have no divine authority, they cannot be applicable to us, either to teach us what we should believe or how we should live our lives. And that's the two facets of the coin we're going to look at today, belief and action, belief and morality. Now, the outcome of such a deconstruction is, like I said, the Scriptures lose all basis as our foundation for life, our foundation for belief. And that's the bottom line of the liberal, critical view of the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, there are those with better intentions, and unfortunately, I'm going to group them together in this second group. I'll call it the moderate group. They look at... Um, scripture with different ideas of the authority of it. Uh, how, how much of it is from God, how much of it was constructed by man. But I'm having to lump them together in order to create three groups here. And what they've done here is they look at this passage especially, these, this talk about the journey between Egypt and the Promised Land, and they look at it in an allegorical fashion. And the reason they do that is they try to make the point of this journey merely a the foundation for morality or ethics. How should we live our lives? And so they look at the decisions and the steps that the Israelites took and they use that as a way we should live our lives. Now, the important thing I have to point out here, there is certainly an aspect of this journey that applies to how we should live our lives. I talked about how this is an important portion of Old Testament Scripture speaking to the Christian walk. And in fact, that's what I'm going to talk about today. But the problem is, is when these stories are understood as only an allegorical basis for how to live our lives, the decisions that we should make each and every day. And if this is the way that we approach Scripture, the problem is the main thing that hampered the Israelites, their unbelief will never be addressed. Because what you're doing is you're looking at these stories and saying, well, the Israelites murmured or the Israelites committed sexual immorality and we should go forth and not do the same. But it never touches on what the underlying problem is. And that problem was their unbelief. And I'll get to the areas and the way that their unbelief manifested itself on the journey. And so I believe William Hendrickson and Simon Kistemacher they rightly understand this issue. They wrote a set of commentaries, and in their First Corinthians commentary, they call the march of the Israelites a, quote, contest of faith, and one in which the rebellious failed in this test of faith. And so if we are to look at both sides of the coin, morality, ethics, belief, and faith, we are left with the last view. I'll call this the conservative view one which accepts the complete historicity of the events that we are looking at. It's the only view which allows for 
the belief and the ethics of the Israelites to stand on their own. This is what happened in history. We can see what they believed, how they lived their life, how they acted out on their belief. And it's the only view which allows that, therefore, to provide the example that Paul talks about in verse 11. An example for us, an admonition, a teaching. And so going on from there, before we can leave Egypt, that's the first part of our journey because we're going between Egypt and the promised land. We have to understand what it is that we are leaving from. I believe failure to truly understand what Egypt is is one of the reasons why there's such a poor response of modern people to the gospel. If you take the message of Christ's deliverance to a, a people in this world that don't believe they are in sin, in slavery and bondage to sin, they will see no need for salvation. Likewise, many of us who are Christians, if we don't truly understand what Egypt is, we will underestimate the miraculous nature of our own deliverance. And therefore, I think if we do that, we could bring a watered-down gospel message to those people who are still in that place that we once stood. Now, for some Perhaps many in this congregation, you have grown up in the church. You've grown up surrounded by God's covenant people. And so the idea of an Egyptian-type experience seems pretty alien to you. But no matter if you can understand this experience more experientially in your own life, having not grown up in the church, or if your view of the experience comes through God's revelation... We must understand what this Egypt is. What is the true nature of ourselves as natural man? Now, Exodus 2.23 shows the plight of the Israelites in their physical bondage. Now, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And again in Exodus 13, Moses writes, So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So for the Israelites, their physical experience, bondage, slavery, that was the place they found themselves. And the curse of bondage and slavery is no different spiritually for the unregenerate man than it was for that Israelite physical experience. And it's important for us to remember that this is the human nature that must be changed by God. This is our natural fallen state. I think of myself a lot of times. I, can, I look back in my life and the picture I have of myself before I was graciously saved by God is not the picture that I read in the Bible. I don't picture myself in that slavery and bondage to sin. And many, perhaps, if you honestly look at yourself and how you look back at your old life, we don't picture ourselves as slaves to sin. We usually have a more rosy picture of where we are coming from. Listen to Paul about how he remarks about this slavery in Romans 6, verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. We were slaves of sin, 
Now, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on Egypt, but I, I'm going to point out one more thing because it points heavily to the glory of God and our salvation. In that portion of Exodus 2 that I read, remember the Israelites, they had lived for a while in Egypt, and then a new ruler came in, the bonds of slavery grew, grew tougher, the work that they had to do became more tedious, and so their cry finally grew strong enough that they cried up to God for deliverance. And God hears that cry, and then we have the exodus from there. But think now how much more merciful and gracious is the love of the Father towards us, and that we would willingly sit stagnant and afraid, we'd sit suffering and beaten in our slavery without crying to Him, because we know not the state that we are in when we live as an unregenerate man. Paul writes in Romans 3, 10-12, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. God waits not for our cry. He doesn't wait for us to cry in our bondage, in our slavery to sin. In fact, He has to release us from that Egypt. It's a slavery worse than physical bondage, if you think about it, because we would be so spiritually dead that we would never desire to leave that state that we were in. We would willingly live in that state of slavery and bondage to sin unless He saved us. And that is how truly deceived you are if you live in that spiritual Egypt. And so remember that. That is the place that He has saved us from. That is the place our journey starts from. And it's all by His grace and mercy. Now, the sermon title was Between Egypt and the Promised Land, so I've got to get out of Egypt and start moving on down to the Promised Land. And the first step we're going to take is take a look at this 1 Corinthians passage. Why did I pick uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the beginning part, playing into this topical sermon? Now, Paul's overarching purpose of writing this section to the Corinthians is given in verse 11 and 12. Now, all of these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition or our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So Paul's point is simply, in verses 1 through uh, 4 or 5, roughly, he's teaching the Corinthians that they shared in the same spiritual blessings from Christ that the Israelites did. Both of them were given this abundance of spiritual blessings from God. And yet, we know that one of the groups the Israelites, and we have it on record, they failed. They failed because of the things he points out, lusting for evil things, committing sexual immorality, complaining, among many other things we can take from the Israelite exodus journey. So Paul, he uses this historical example of the Israelite shortcomings and their subsequent scattering in the wilderness in order to urge the Corinthians on past this point. He's saying... Okay, you've been saved by God. You're at this point of deliverance. But this point of deliverance is not the end of the journey. There's a long way to go from this point. There's a long way between Egypt and the promised land. 
And then he says, don't be prideful despite all these things that you've been given, despite all the blessings we've been given. Take heed lest we fall in the same way that the Israelites fell short in the wilderness. In Philippians 3, 13-14, Paul explains to the Philippians the same concept that he was driving home to the Corinthians. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And so now I want to take this background we have of the Israelites and then the teachings, the warnings that Paul gives to the Corinthians, and having both of those examples, I want to apply it to ourselves in Dominion Covenant Church. And may, hopefully by doing that, some of us will see a point of correlation, something that we have in common with the lack of faith that the Israelites showed in their journey. By looking at that, examining ourselves in the Spirit, perhaps we'll find that point and then be encouraged to press forward from Egypt into that promised land, the rest which Christ has purchased already and promised for us. Now, one of the first ways that the Israelites favor, uh, failed in, and I think that Christians begin to lose traction in their life, is by thinking that you are alone, either separated from God in some way or from His people, Christians fighting for the same cause with the same fight behind their leader, Jesus Christ. Now, I think this change in outlook, this change in belief, happens in two ways. First, there is perhaps a catastrophic event. A death that happens causes you to doubt God's presence in your life. The second way, though, I believe is more common. And it's just that over time, the spiritual blessings and the graces that He has poured out on us, we do not use them to our utmost. And so that relationship with God tends to degrade over time because we are not pressing forward towards that prize. I, I can think of this in my own life. In weeks when I look back, and although I have all the benefits and opportunities to read God's Word and pray, I sometimes treat God as if He is just an afterthought because the events of the world uh, seem to gather momentum around me. And so he becomes secondary, although he should always be primary. And so his presence seems to me to have drifted away. Now the first case, we have a great parallel in the Israelites' experience. This case was their feeling that they were alone, that they were separated from God, although he had miraculously already showed them that he would deliver them from Egypt. Moses writes in Exodus 32.1, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Here are the words of what the Israelites say. Make us gods that shall go before us. See their desire to have something bigger than themselves lead them into this unknown, this place that they were going. They clearly implied that the delay in Moses and coming down from the mountain meant that they felt he, and therefore the God that he was with, were no longer leading them. They felt the presence of God was no longer there. Their faith began to waver in presence. 
Now, before we so quickly condemn them for their sin and failure, I think we should not forget there are times in our own life when we feel God is is not there like He was, or perhaps doors have opened up to us and we see, oh, this is the way we can go. I can sense God's presence and yet He draws us a different way or we move in a different direction. And so we might take it to think that perhaps He's not there. Where, where is God moving? I don't know. And Moses has an answer to that as well for us as he did to the Israelites. Then it came to pass when Moses had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness and the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Think about the state of mind of the Israelites. They've just escaped from their land of slavery and bondage. They see the path where they want to go, and it's short. It's heading right through the Philistines. Let's head that way. That's got to be where God wants us to go because He wants us to get there and worship Him. And yet that's not the plan He has. He sends them a different way. But it wasn't that He wasn't with them. It was that He was always looking out for for them, seeing their best interest as He does for us. And when He does that for us, we just need to know that there are ways in which He works at times that may be hidden to us in any one particular event. And so our faith in His presence must be strong just that it is, not that we have to understand everything that happens to us in our life. Now there was another time, I didn't take this event from the Israelite experience, when a person felt separated from other believers. And this was the second failure in presence that I wanted to talk about. In this case, it's from Elijah. He was to the point where he prayed for death because he was tired and worn out. He had been preaching the words to the Israelites, and yet they had forsaken their covenant and had begun to kill his fellow prophets. And he asked for God to take his life. Now God answered him as well, just as Moses gave an answer to the people about why their journey went a different way. God told Elijah he had people set aside who had not bowed their knee to Baal. And so the same charge could be brought against ourselves. Do we, do we tend to grow cynical of current events, believing that perhaps we are fighting the good fight when so many people are not? Do we feel alone as a person or as a church that there are not others fighting with us? But let us know God's providential hand, His presence, is with us and his presence is with his people who are also with him and we are all together one body although we may not know where they are at at any one given time God's presence is there in himself and in his people I think sometimes when we get in the state of mind it's easy to almost pray to a more deistic God a God who Although he's there, he's not imminent. He's not involved in our events. And it's so easy to slip into that when we are not living our life in tune with God's presence there each and every day. When our faith wavers in his presence, our prayers to him will be more like prayers to a deistic God than the living God that is involved in every step 
of our life. Paul writes, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That is the point of faith we need to be in. Faith in the presence of God, knowing he's working in each and every step of our life. If we let this unbelief and his presence grow, I think the, the bottom line would, would be that we would face fear of our surroundings. It's a fear that could overcome us, as it almost did at times and did later to the Israelites. Here's what they said in their fear. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. They had just been saved. They had just been brought out of their Egypt. And yet already their faith in the presence of God had begun to waver. And so fear enveloped them. They had a desire to return to that place they were at. And that is something we don't want in our own life. We don't want to return back to that slavery and bondage to sin. And Moses had a reply to the people. It's one I echo for you today. He said, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. That is faith and the presence of God. And so my answer to you today, if you're struggling in faith, concerning the presence of God in your life or the feeling that we are fighting this good fight alone, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish today. But not only do we doubt the presence of God, sometimes we fail to recognize that God will provide for all of our needs. Now for the Israelites, I, I don't have to, thir- to document their case. We all know how they failed in this area. Every miracle blessing was poured out on them to ensure their every need was met. Maybe not their every want, but their every need was met. Whether it was food, water, a military victory that they needed to move on, whatever was needed, each need had been met by God, only to be met with grumbling. And for this reason, His judgment fell on them constantly. In fact, so much so that on average, although at times it was worse than others, 90 Israelites per day died on that journey. Think about that number. 90 people in this group that you have going around the wilderness dying per day. A constant reminder of God's judgment for the grumbling that the Israelites have. And we don't always have that view so clearly that the Israelites have. And they grumbled. And so we have to be careful in our own lives that we don't follow in the same path that they are. Another example of their failure in faith to believe in the provision of God occurred as they stood on the edge of the promised land and they sent their spies into the land. Now, remember, they're sitting there on the edge of the promised land. This is the land that they have been promised. And they were not willing to believe that God would provide for them all that he had spoken. 
Well, the result of this act of disobedience was that they soon mounted their own assault into the land. And as we know, it ended in disaster. The Amalekites and the Canaanites beating back their forces. Driven by their unbelief in the provision of God, their answer is one, that we are too common to go to ourselves when we feel that God's provision is no longer there. Sensing that He will not provide what we need, we desire to take things into our own hands. And so by doing that, we take out of God's hand to do in His time and in His way and put it under our own control. And as we see with the Israelites, every time they did that, it ended in disaster. It wasn't the last time it happened. One other time was when Achan, when they took Jericho and they were told not to take anything from that land, he decided to bring a little memento back from his journey. And so he brought later defeat on his people and death on himself and his family. What all of these attempts have in common is that men devised their own way to accumulate that which God had already promised them. They had decided that they needed to go out on their own and do and to take what was either not theirs or what had been promised to them, but they wanted to do it in their own way, to take credit for what God should be taking credit for. Do we in our own lives fail to trust in His provision? Does our, is our failure weak to believe that God will provide for all we need? Or do we live a life like Paul who said, not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. That is a man who has faith in the provision of God. We cannot forget this life, this physical time we're on earth between our spiritual Egypt and our rest is not our personal accumulation trip. We're not here to gather things up. We cannot take it with us as the saying goes. And nor is it one in which our spiritual enemies are conquered by our own strength. The Israelites' experience shows us this over and over. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the sins that Paul pointed out that the Israelites failed in. And he says in Colossians 3.5 to us, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are the spiritual enemies that we fight against. And just as the Israelites learned that they couldn't defeat their physical enemies without going in the way of God, without trusting in His presence, without trusting in His provision, we need to learn the same way that we fight our spiritual enemies only under that same presence and provision of God. Now we can know by God's Word that the Israelites failed to trust. They failed to believe in the provision of God. And then they failed to overcome these sins in their own works on their journey and died in the wilderness. Let us learn from their Example, not to duplicate their path. Let us trust fully in not only God's provision, but His presence and learn from the instruction of their example. Now lastly, 
unbelief manifested itself in their failure to trust in His presence and their failure to trust in His provision. And now we will see that a lack of faith caused them to doubt in His power to bring them into the promised land. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat the Christian walk here. It is like the journey the Israelites took between Egypt and the Promised Land. It's fraught with many dangers. A world and enemy standing against us. A sin nature that constantly fights against us. A prideful heart. Fear of the unknown. Even time itself on this life. But the Promised Land, once again, our rest is ultimately something that God has given us. And if we have faith in His presence and His provision and His power, we too will persevere to that end. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 4, 1-2 states, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, the Israelites, but the word which they did not which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it the word was preached to them but it wasn't mixed with faith and i've listed only 3 areas here faith in god's presence in his provision and his promise and there are other areas of faith that they struggled with and eventually failed with as well Hear what the author of Hebrews says. The word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. And this failure in faith, which caused the Israelites to fall short, is evident today. We see Christians falling short of our promised rest. People who, for whatever reasons, have decided to stop on their journey between Egypt and that rest. They are not persevering to the end. They decided a temporary rest on this earth, in this life, is better than that which God will provide for us in eternity. Ultimately, I fear that the reason they have stopped is because they have a lack of trust, a lack of faith in God's presence, in His provision, and His power. His power that alone will allow us to persevere to the end, to make it to that rest. Bruce Waltke states it perfectly in his work in Old Testament theology. He writes that the wilderness is the route of promise on the way to the land, or the wilderness is an unbearable abandonment to be avoided by return to slavery. Do we have faith in God's presence, a strong faith, a vibrant faith, one that is pressing forward, that type of faith? Do we have that faith in His presence that He will provide everything we need and that He will give us the power to do all things, to take us to the promised land, to persevere to the end? If we have that faith, then this journey we're on is a route of promise on the way to the land. If our faith is wavering, if our faith is weak, then perhaps we have reached the step that Mr. Waltke said where we feel unbearably abandoned. And feeling abandoned, we desire to turn back to the slavery and bondage as the Israelites desired to return to their Egypt. 
the difference between the view, the difference between how we view this wilderness, this journey between Egypt and the promised land is summed up in our faith and how we view things and how we view God. Can we sing with his people as they do in Revelation? I heard the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Paul is clear here in 1 Corinthians 10. He is stating to the Corinthians church that their case is no different than the Israelites. The examples that they give and their failure could happen to the Corinthians just as quickly and as surely as it did to the Israelites. And Christ has given us his word, his revelation, and it's the same for us today. We all serve the same God, Israelites, Corinthians, and ourselves. Will we learn from their example and their admonition? For all of the moral failures that the Israelites had and that some scholars like to look at to guide our lives, for all of their failures, it was ultimately a lack of trust. It was a lack of faith in His presence and His provision and His power which drove them to sin and the judgment they felt. It wasn't just that they sinned in one way or the other. It was that they failed to trust in a God who had shown that He would miraculously save them from the place that they were in bondage, just as he saved us. Faith is the bottom line. And their lack of faith is where their sin began and ultimately where it ended when they were left in the, in the wilderness. If we are to learn from their instruction, from their example, we must, with the Spirit's guidance, evaluate our own faith. Are we following in the example of the Israelites? And if we are, we need to turn to God today and ask for Him to strengthen that faith. He is the giver of our faith. He will provide us with what we pray for. But hopefully we are not. Hopefully our faith is strong. We are trusting in His presence, His provision, and His power. And knowing that He alone will take us to our eternal rest. My prayer is that the Lord would strengthen the faith of of us all because we all have weak spots at one time or another in our life and only He can provide us for what we need to fill those spots when things seem empty or broken and we seem alone. Let us not become caught up in the fact that we feel abandoned in this land between Egypt and the rest He has promised. Let us feel as if we walk on the route of His promises as we all journey onward to that prize which He has laid for us. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you've given us your Son. You have poured out on us blessings as you did on the Israelites. Lord, you've saved us from a life of sin and a life of slavery to that sin. You reached down and regenerated us and turned us towards you. We thank you for that. We thank you for the faith that you've given us, a faith in your presence, a faith in your provision, that you will meet all of our needs. And Lord, that you will give us the power that we need to defeat both the sins in our lives 
and to move on forward to that eternal rest. I just pray for the faith of your people that it would be strengthened by your words, by your actions in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.